Welcome back to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And as a reminder, Act 2 is a network support group for the everyday working screenwriter, which this podcast is just one of the things we do. Please reach out to us, subscribe, give us a rating, write a comment, but most of all, say hi to our very special guest today. Mickey, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> sure. Hi, my name is Mickey Fisher, and uh, yeah, I'm a writer, producer, playwright, uh, and uh, reformed actor. Oh, oh goodness. We'll, <laughs> we should get into that. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is exciting. I, I reached out to Mickey. I begged him. I said, please come on the podcast. And he did it somehow, some way. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming on. Mickey, I actually have a confession to make because I first became aware of you and your awesomeness when I was an assistant at Universal because your script came across my boss's desk because it was like the hot new script to read in town. Sure. Everyone was reading it. Everyone was talking about it. It was this incredible new script that got Halle Berry attached. It came from nowhere. People were like, it's just some guy from Iowa. We don't know where he's from. We couldn't find it on a map. <laughs> By the way, it was one of the best scripts I had read when I was at that desk. Excellent Pilot was fantastic. I appreciate that. Um, and we're going to get into it in a second, but it was immediately, I mean, obviously a hit for a reason. But these stories, Mickey, I don't know if you know the extent that, that this went, but there were stories about hey, this Mickey guy. He lived in his mother's basement before he got famous. And there, <laughs> are, there were stories like just building this myth around this guy who like, this is the first script he ever wrote and the first meeting he got was with Steven Spielberg. Like you became a God among people who were like aspiring writers at the time. And I remember as an assistant, I was like, how do I speak with this man? Like, I, yeah. must, I must somehow find him. And here we are eight years later. And I promised it wasn't a long game. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. It's funny because like, I, I remember uh, shortly afterwards, I think it was right when I, had, was first in the writer's room. Uh, and it was like one of those afternoons where it was just me and like the writer's assistant and the staff writer. And it was, you know, things were quiet. We were like either j just coming back from lunch or just ending for the day. And they were like, so we have to ask you like, which of these stories are true, right? So it was like, it was kind of like my first experience of hearing like the mythology that had kind of like trailed behind it. Uh, and it was hilarious. Like some of it, yeah, I mean, like I, it wasn't my first script I'd written dozens at that point. I'd been trying to break in for like 20 years. Yeah. And I almost started like there, there was a part of me that wish I could go back in time and just be as eccentric as the mythology. Yeah. Right. <laughs> would believe. Like I wish I had been shown up in like a monocle and a top hat, you know, things like yes. that to sort of, like live up to the hype or <laughs> dress as a robot. Cause like, so like the actual story is, you know, not not boring, but it is not not so out of um, you know, not so out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. I'm glad I wasn't the only one who's spreading these rumors about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love the one like this is like a you. He'd never written a script before, and all of a sudden, it's like that's no. Yeah, you've been grinding away. Exactly. Yeah. That's always the first thing people think too, by the way, when someone finds success who seemingly came out of nowhere was this was the first script. Like they must have you know, done something, you know, there's some conspiracy theory to why this person got this job, right? <laughs> that, that seems oh, to always be the case. Um, but we're going to get into all of that. I think before we do, though, 
we do this segment on the show before we start anything, which is like a this week in writing, where we just talk about something that has come up in our writing lives that we're struggling with or that was interesting. So if you have one, please bring it. I know Josh has one. It's kind of interesting. It's about a tweet, actually. It's It's a tweet from Zach Stentz. I don't know Zach. I love a lot of the things Zach writes. So you don't have to comment on this, Mickey, if you don't want to. But he wrote this Twitter thread, and the completion of this was that writers, especially those of us who live in Los Angeles and largely socialize with other writers and industry peeps, need to remember that everyone else on the planet doesn't talk the way that we do. And that's the end of it. And to summarize a little bit more, it was kind of discussing how you just have to be aware as a writer of how you are... Uh, having your character speak in the script. So it sounds like relatable characters. Yeah, I think the first example Zach gave was um, he'd watched an episode of Saved by the Bell and one of the characters makes a Max Landis joke, which even in Los Angeles, like few people know who Max Landis is. Like that's a very specific joke. And then someone else wrote a tweet that um, in response was like, yeah, when people say take a beat, that's not a phrase that exists outside of sort of Los Angeles industry people, which is news to me because I say it all the time. But um, yeah, like, you know, obviously we say take a beat because in a screenplay, a beat is a moment. And mm-hmm. um, I had to look this up, like where the hell did beat come from? Is this really unique to us? And according to Wikipedia, the rumor is that the word beat came from a Russian screenwriter who told someone that writing a script was just a matter of putting all of the bits together. And because of his accent, the, the producer heard beats. And so they just started <laughs> saying beats. Sounds like a rumor to me. But yeah, what do you think of that? You know, it's interesting. There is a thing like I, I just listened to this interview with Rod Serling not too long ago where he he kind of felt like that was one of his uh, Achilles heels because he said, you know, like all of his characters talked like him because they were all coming from his point of view and the things that he wanted to talk about and and you know, what he wanted to sort of put out in the world. And I, you know, I think that's true of a lot of writers. Like I I feel like I've heard Aaron Sorkin say something vaguely similar to that recently. And so, yeah, I, I I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's true. If you're really like, if, if what's exciting to you is the sort of inside baseball thing, if that's all your references and stuff you're putting in there, it's probably not going to fly, you know, like all, all around the world. But I, I, to me, it's always like, it's all just rooted in the character, right? So the more that you know those people uh, by heart and the more different and varied they are and have their own strong POV, they're going to have their own way of speaking and they're going to have their own references and things that are, you know, of interest and exciting to them and how they connect and relate to each other. So uh, yeah. it just seems like know your characters is probably probably an easy way around that. Yeah. The, Sor- the Sorkin example is an interesting one. I remember watching West Wing at one point and being like, wait a second, that line sounds real familiar. And then it was in, oh. you know, <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. a few good men or something like that. I remember he used the exact same line and his characters are so good and so vivid. And yet there is an Aaron Sorkin-ness across all of them at the same time. Yeah, there's that one Aaron Sorkin cut where I think it shows all the different characters saying the same thing in different yeah. shows and movies, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, Mickey, I think you're absolutely right. Is just knowing your character, I, like always what that comes down to, because a lot of times for me, if I'm figuring out my character, it's like, you know, what's, where's this person from? What's their deal? But I don't actively think like, how does this person speak to other people? Like Which what I'm is probably... their colloquialisms? Yes. That's harder. Yeah. 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 
I should do that more. Which, often. by the way, let's back up for just one second. Say by the bell, doesn't it take place like in an LA sort of suburban high school? So they might know, like that might be populated by a bunch of industry kids. Their parents are all working. I, <laughs> I, I buy that. Say, I, I love that. I love the say. I love this show, Say by the Bell, the reboot. They're in season two right now. It is so good. And when I hear these inside <laughs> baseball jokes, I just, I love them. There's a that's lot. Awesome. Of them. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So that's this week in writing. There we it is. We have a lot more, but I feel like this is what we're going to get into is way more interesting. Um, Mickey, we're going to just rapid fire Q and a you and hopefully we can all catch up, but um, you obviously have a really interesting story of how you broke in. We're going to get a little bit into that and just a little bit into what it's like to be a creator. um, Some of your experiences there and just going to go, Josh, go take it away. All right. Well, I'm just going to bring this back to where we started. And can you tell us how you got your break with extant? Like what happened and, uh, like, so we can debunk the myth that is Mickey. Now I wish I'd come up with like a whole other like origin story, um, yeah. just to like a, to fake people out. Uh, no, yeah, like I, I mentioned, uh, like joking as a reformed actor, but I actually had gone to college for musical theater mm-hmm. uh, to University of Cincinnati's College Conservatory of Music. Uh, it's a great musical theater program, and the purpose of which is to to turn out triple threats and and send people off to to work on Broadway. And so it was a very competitive program. Um, while I was there, I, it was, I, I grew up in Ohio in a very small town close to there. So it was only a couple hours away. Grew up doing theater, but loved movies and television. I was like very much a eighties Amblin kid. Uh, I, I mentioned this often, but like my very first memory as a human being is going to see star Wars. Like that's, so I was sad that sort of like all of my DNA watching twilight zone with my grandmother growing up, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but when I went to college, it was my first time really, uh, being exposed to like an art house. And it was at that moment where there were all those like great independent movies, Tarantino, Kevin Smith, uh, Allison Anders, who's from Ashland, Kentucky, who's right across from my hometown. Um, all those people were coming out with these movies that had been made for like thousands of dollars. And I was going to see them at this art house in Cincinnati called the Esquire Theater. And c- concurrently with that, my professors were telling me, you know, you're probably not going to work till you're in your forties. You're a character guy. Uh, you know, by the time that, like your type catches up to the ages you characters you should be playing, you know, it might take a while. And so I started writing, already had that interest anyway, but it also kind of, I think it pushed me to do it faster because I just want to start writing stuff for myself to perform. By the time I left school, I wanted to be a writer as much as I wanted to be an actor. Uh, spent a year in Chicago where I wrote my first feature that was absolutely terrible. <laughs> so, um, But I kept going. And then I moved to New York a year later, started doing uh, off-Broadway, off, not off-Broadway, off-off-off-off-Broadway, like very small, wow. like you know, black box things, Fringe Festival shows, putting those up with my friends and writing my own plays. And then uh, in my mid to late 20s, started making my own movies. I had written a bunch of features by that point. Um, I had kind of gotten, at, at sort of every turn when I sort of felt kind of like roadblocked or, or, or stopped, like, I mean, I'm writing all these plays, but nobody's wanting to produce them. So we'll just put them up ourselves. Like we'll enter yeah. them in the French festival. We'll do it ourselves. And same thing with the movies. I was like, you know, I can't really get these features out. And so, you know, what if I make it on my own? Like I'll raise the money. I'll shoot on a shoestring budget. I'll go back to Ironton, Ohio. I'll shoot with my friends and family, uh, hire people from school, made that low, couple low budget movies. Uh, I just kept going and going. I kept writing. I was still working in theater as an actor and a writer director. Can I interrupt for a second? Because I'm curious what, what you were doing for rent during that time, because that is a, a full-time job to put all that, those movies together, but you're spending money on movies. You're not making money at that. For stage. sure. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it was like, 
it was, I, I was doing anything and everything. Like I had a number of jobs where, well, like I said, I was still doing theater at the time. So I was being paid to like be an actor in summer stock and to direct shows and to write some plays for people. Um, but I was also doing things like handing out flyers in Times Square for mm-hmm. other people's, <laughs> for, for Broadway shows that my former classmates were in, you know, things like that. Yeah. So was, that's a humbling experience. Um, but also like I had shot this movie and knew it was going to take a while to edit it. My girlfriend was going on the Annie tour in the cast. Uh, so I got a job selling merchandise. So I went on the road with her. Oh. I was selling t-shirts and little Sandy dogs at intermission. And then while the show was going on, I would pull out my laptop and edit this feature uh, or I would write. So um, and I did that in New York, too, for a long time. I, I was selling merch at, at tons of different Broadway shows. If it was a really interesting play, I would watch it a ton. But if it wasn't or if I got bored with it, I would take my notebook. And while the play was going, first act, second act, I would have like an hour to write in the stairwell or, you know, like down at the bar. Uh, then I would sell the T-shirts and the merch and then I would go back to writing. So I was doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and just like stringing together whatever money I could. And then like with making the movies, it was really like you know, borrowing money from friends and family, raising money. And then when that ran out, I was just like the next two years paying it off with whatever odd jobs I was doing, mm-hmm. uh, doing anything and everything that goes going. Um, and then about, a, I don't know, like now it was uh, 10 years ago, my girlfriend and I moved here from New York because uh, I got to the point where I said, look, I, I'm not meeting people who are doing what I really want to do here in New York. There's so much of this happened in LA. I knew that by this point, I knew a bit more about television, that there were a bunch of writers rooms and that there were multiple people in these writers rooms and that the idea of breaking in that way, as opposed to selling like the big Joe Esterhaas feature spec kind of thing, or like the, the Shane Black break in was probably like, that wasn't really an option anymore. Mm-hmm. So, um, but maybe breaking into a, a, a writer's room was. And so I came out here, spent about a, 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 that first year learning to write television instead of the full length plays and the features I've been writing. Um, it is a different beast. And then wrote this pilot extant that I entered into a contest. Did you uh, was, teach yourself how to write TV? Were you taking classes at the time? Totally self-taught. I mean, that's I was self-taught and all that stuff from the beginning. Um, I, I mean, I remember even when I was in college, my junior year, going to the bookstore and finding like screenplay, I said field yeah. or whatever that book was called, right? And that's that was step one. I was guys just like, they have all these ideas, but like, what does it actually look like on a page? Mm-hmm. And that was the first book that taught me that. And so, but when it came to the television, um, it really was just, I sat down with a notebook in one hand and a remote control in another. I just started watching episodes of TV and just breaking them down uh, almost like, you know, like a blueprint, like mathematically, like this episode of Friday Night Lights had this many acts and each act had about this many scenes. I timed them like each scene is about this, you know, this this many minutes long. And uh, I kind of taught myself to do it that way. And it's funny because I remember when I first started making the rounds, there was one meeting I had where, (laughs) <laughs> the executive and now now it's sort of making sense with the mythology in the meantime like because he was like holding up he's like he's like it's even like the perfect length you know it's like you know it's like 57 eight. <laughs> and now it makes sense if i thought i was just like winging it from you know from yeah. uh, iowa how somewhere. did you know yeah from... <laughs> did your mom tell you <laughs> did your theater background and and just uh pursuit of acting kind of help you with screenwriting like with oh this is how the character should develop throughout the you know throughout a pilot or throughout a story so did you kind of you almost had it hardwired in you already tons yeah i mean it's every day like there are things that i learned the first semester of my acting class freshman year of college that i still think about all the time and i'm writing Mm -hmm. like the those very basic questions of 
you know, what do I want? Why do I want it? Why does it have to be now? Like those sort of basic questions I learned in acting class. And then, you know, the, what it feels like to be on stage saying dialogue, I think gave me a, a proficiency for that. And then it's interesting, like, while I was going through this process of learning to write television, my girlfriend was going to grad school for acting. And so she was studying the Stanislavski method. And so there were things she was learning that I would be talking to her about that would either reinforce or kind of shine a new light on things that uh, concepts that I was already working with. Mm-hmm. So for instance, there's that the, the sort of concept of um, appraisal, you know, sort of like a moment where the, the, uh, an event happens and there's a moment of appraisal for the actor to who's like, you know, the phone rings, right? It's like you pick up the phone and somebody tells you that a loved one has died. There's mm-hmm. a moment of appraisal there where you're taking in that information and then it changes to whatever new action you're going to take, right? And so that, as she was learning that stuff and I would be talking to her in the evenings, evenings after her class, that was filtering into this stuff too mm-hmm. and really thinking in terms of emotional point of view in the script and like what the actor was going to be playing uh, and how like to sort of like roadmap that for them through it. So like, I think that all came organically from being an actor, but then I was, I was being exposed to it along the way that just kept reinforcing that stuff. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. And then, okay. So you entered, uh, you wrote the pilot and you entered which competition? It was the tracking B TV pilot contest. Oh, right. Okay. So you enter the contest and then the, the myth begins to spiral out of control. The myth begins to spiral out of control. Yeah. I mean, look, everything, there were, there were a number of threads that came together at the same time. Uh, so there's a, diff, there was a whole other contest. It was a feature contest that had been held by the writer's store uh, at the same time. And I had been a finalist in that. And it, basically what it was, was they took a log line from an established screenwriter, A-list screenwriter. Uh, in my round, it was Susanna Grant, who was one of my heroes. Um, she's my WGA she, mentor. She's one of my she, heroes too. <laughs> you tell her that Mickey Fisher says hello I and that will. Still, uh, he would still throw himself into traffic for her. Uh, she's so cool. Sorry, go on. Uh, she's phenomenal. I mean, I and I still like her work is still just inspiring. Yeah. She um and I had lunch with her. It could have been more uh luminous that day. She was she's just a great like great spirit. Um, mm-hmm. but that that contest they took a log line that was that she came up with. And you came up with whatever genre, whatever story. Uh, so I actually won that contest, that feature contest, which I think it happened like on a Friday. So they're like, hey, you're, you won this contest. The prize is you're going to have lunch with Susanna Grant. And there's this you're going to have a meeting with this one manager uh, at this one company. The following Wednesday, uh, this thing happened with Tracking BTV Pilot Contest. That guy said, hey, you're, you're second place. Uh, the, the prize this contest, we're trying to put it in the hands of people who can do something with it. So we're going to start sending around. You may start getting some calls. Uh, and I did. I started getting the next day. I started getting calls and emails from agents or mostly managers. Uh, and then Saturday, I got a call from this guy, Broken Weaver, who I'd been reading about for a long time. I'd, I'd just been familiar with his name for like 10 years, all the way back to Project Greenlight 2, which I'd entered mm-hmm. and was a semifinalist. Oh, wow. Uh, like the top 200. I think I was in like the top 250 of that contest, if I remember correctly. Um, so he, I signed with him. He made a good, a good pitch and, uh, signed with him. He started sending around and it went kind of viral through town. Yeah. And then I started having meetings at, at the agencies. I, I signed with WME the next day they sent it to Amblin. They said, let's just start at the person who does aliens and robots better than anybody. It was Steven Spielberg. Uh, and then two weeks later I was having that meeting at Amblin and then it kind of like, it just took off like crazy. He really liked the script and his executives really liked the script. Uh, they paired me with a showrunner. We, we, revamped this overview document that I had and then we took it out to sell it together to nine different places and it ended up at 
CBS. They ordered it straight to series. And then shortly after we heard Halle Berry was interested. So it was just like one crazy turn of events after another. And that could only have happened because your script is incredible. So that's, that's sort of the, I mean, you can say luck all you want, Mickey, but it really, you know, Brooklyn found it and to think let's send it to Amblin when you're such a new writer as well the confidence they must have had in you and the material would have been extraordinary because that put I mean to send it to the best of the best puts their neck on the line as well so that's For pretty sure. incredible you know I think part of that had to do with like in the meantime and I always say this there are some things that I kind of I, I say lucked into or just did intuitively uh, I mean look I, tr- I firmly believe that there are two the, the sort of two things I've validated for me. One is that if you have the right piece of material at the right time, that it will open all those doors for you. You know, if it's something that somebody's looking for, then like sky's the limit. But the other thing is it does take a little bit of luck, right? Because if any person in that chain had said, this really isn't for me, not really my taste, not really, then who knows? Like I might I might not be here talking to you today. And, I, and so, but I do think that there were a couple of things I did that made me ready for that moment. Not just the 20 years of work ahead of that time, uh, I was old enough. I really knew who I was. I was 40. You know, I was 39 year age, turned 40 um, as we were taking out the cell. The other thing was that I sort of instinctively, because I really loved the story, I wrote an overview document for myself that was essentially like a pitch document. And I even wrote a second episode that was like fan fiction of my own unproduced pilot. Mm-hmm. So when I went in for these meetings, I had it like, first of all, with the, with Brooklyn and then with the agency, uh, you know, at every meeting, it's like, oh, I think this guy sort of knows what he wants to do with this and has a vision for the show. And and knows himself and has been doing this long enough that there, I, I think there was a confidence hopefully um, that came across. Like, I really felt like, okay, I'm ready. Like, this is, this is my moment. Of course, inside I'm like terrified too. And yeah. <laughs> there's the other voice is like, you're not ready for this. That's actually what my, my big question. My, my next question is for you is like, you, you know, you, you came from New York, you're now in LA, you're teaching yourself screenwriting and suddenly here you are being thrown into really big meetings and you're starting to take generals were you terrified? Were you excited? And your point about being kind of older and, and more confident just in who you are is a, is a big one. But take us through your mindset in those early days when you're first starting to take these meetings. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was it was all the above. It was like terrifying, but also exhilarating to find yourself on those studio lots and to be driving past the Star Wars mural on the Fox lot or whatever, or you're walking under the rainbow at Sony. Uh I, I, it's still my hobby to this day to walk around and look at the plaques on the stages and be like, Oh my God, like the Godfather was shot right yeah. here on this stage. You know, like that stuff is always so cool. And then you're in this, you're in a, an executive's office and you're talking to this producer who's made some of your favorite movies. And then you look to your left and there's, you know, Wilson, the volleyball from Castaway. You're know, like, <laughs> that stuff is like so super cool uh, and so exhilarating. Or if like, you know, you're, you're going into, 21 laps or bad robot. There are these like super cool offices. And, and you finally feel like you feel like you you're in, in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Um, and then, and then on the flip side of that, there is this, there is a little bit of that imposter syndrome, that fear of like, I shouldn't be here at any moment. They're going to figure it out. I'm going to get escorted off the lot. Yeah. I mean, there are things that happen to you along the way too, that can cause you to really like question your, impulses and your taste and your choices you know, things like that too and um, can we narrow and, in on something like that 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 you that you can recall yeah sure i mean i really do feel like at the end of season one of accent that because i've been like I, I got very fortunate in the early part of the process that enough people really liked that pilot script that it didn't change a ton 
by the time it, it was shot. But once we went into the process of making the first season and we had this plan and we were going forward with this plan, well, then it's like, then you're just in like sort of open warfare and there's you know, ideas coming from everywhere and you're, and then the production train is barreling behind you. And so you're making choices and you're making creative choices for the story based on all these other things now that aren't necessarily just about like, this was my vision for where this is going. And I say my vision, but it's like once the writers came in and the showrunner came in, we had a writer, fantastic writer's room uh, and a great showrunner and really smart, creative producers. And, and even the, and, and I'll say everybody, like the execs, everybody's trying to make a great show. Um, but once it's you're, you're, you're pitching the ideas, you're like, this is really great. And it gets pulled apart. It starts again. You start to doubt, like, hmm. do I even know what I'm doing? <laughs> like, am I so far off the mark? Did I just manage to get lucky for that 57 pages? Yeah. And now that I'm being you know asked to do this at this level that I just can't come up with the goods. And it really is not the, it, you really have to take a step back from that and go, it's really not, it's not about that. It's just that about now you're in the middle of the machine and, and subject to all the things that the machine <laughs> needs and requires of you to produce an episode of television. And so my way sort of around that was every weekend carving out time to write something new that was totally my own, that wasn't subject to criticism or rejection from anybody wow. else. It didn't need anybody else to give me permission to write it. It was solely my own. And I think that's how I stayed creatively in touch and try to just reconnect with those impulses mm. uh, along the way. So I didn't lose them at the end of that. I really yep. love that idea. I empathize so much with the story you just told. Absolutely. That fear and those doubts that come. I've literally asked that question to my fiance a dozen times like, in this process. And um, yeah, that's a really fantastic way of keeping yourself centered. Yeah. I, 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 it, I love this too, because it sounds like you just knew that you had to always keep going, even from mm -hmm. uh, when you were starting out. It's like, just keep going, keep going. Because a lot of times, when, especially when you're writing, you can hone in on one feature, one thing, and you're on it for like a year. And before you know it, your life is going by. And you're like, what the? Like, and you're listening to other people. You're not listening to yourself. And that's a, that's a good lesson. Just keep mm -hmm. staying in touch with your yourself. I Listen, I think that that's a huge part of it because I... I think, well, A, like you're always going to need new material for, you don't want, you don't want to be the person sending out a, a 10 year old spec for uh, right. staffing. Right. So you're always going to like generating new material for that. But I do think that like continuing to carve out time to look ahead, it's like, it's, it's sort of seeing like, where do I want to be in three years and, and trying to write toward that? What's the piece of material? What, what are the ideas I need to start generating now to get me there? Uh, and mm -hmm. then use it. It's also a coping mechanism for, in the meantime, um, and then not being caught flat-footed if, if everything grinds to a halt on this other project tomorrow, that I have something else that's sort of already like, that's not a, an empty whiteboard or, or a blank page. And, and by the way, I've just, you know, because of Stephen Sondheim's passing last week, I've been watching a ton of interviews and stuff with him. And it was very heartening. Uh, also a little terrifying that he, even in his seventies, he was like, it just gets harder as you get older to come up to start new things because you have all the knowledge of, you have your past behind you and what and, and people's expectations of you and what you do. And then you also have the sort of knowledge of like the marketplace and the, the sort of the, the, the fear of that and where these fit. I, I think that it was sort of heartening to hear that, that even he was going through that 
Um, because I, you know, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for mm -hmm. me. <laughs> um, we can all be scared I, together. <laughs> we can all be scared together. But I really think the only way to counteract that is to keep just like sitting down and doing the thing that you know how to do, which is just keep generating ideas and putting them down on page. So I was going to say something that I really appreciate and love about you, Mickey, is that uh, you have a website and you kind of put out all of this material. Um, it's it's resources essentially for pitching and and you've you've uh, written about your process and um, I bet I guess I'm just wondering why did you start doing that so like right now you have pitches that you can listen to right of of yourself I think it's on SoundCloud or it's on your it's on your website um, was that something where you're like I just want to give back or was it something where you thought you know I I'm just not going to do anything with this. So I might as well put it out there or like, what was uh, the thinking behind it? And um... yeah, it's a little bit of both. You know, I, when I started learning how to do this, mm -hmm. there were a few resources that I found super helpful. Um, Terry Rossio had that website for a long time that had a bunch of blogs about his process and how he and his partner, how they you know, gone through the pitching and the writing process. Uh, Jane Espenson had a great blog for a long time. It was very similar. And then as you, know, as time went on, there were podcasts started taking off. There was like um, Sam and Jim go to Hollywood. These, those two guys uh, had started a podcast that was about their, them trying to break in. Uh, and then there was a writer's panel podcast by this guy, Ben Blacker, who's since become a friend of mine. And that was kind of how I was learning uh, the business side of things. Yeah. And, and mm -hmm. each of those, each of those resources helped demystify the process in a way that I thought was just so helpful. So when I finally got to the point where I felt like I had something that I could offer back uh, to share, like, Hey, look, this is how one, this is how I do it. And uh, maybe you're going to find some value in this. I'm always, I'm totally of the belief that there's no one way to do this. It's just like, there's so many ways to break in. There's so many ways to pitch a show there's so many types of delivery, visuals, no visuals, do it like a monologue, read it from the page. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, it, it, it's all been done and it's all been successful and it's mm -hmm. all been unsuccessful, right? And so you have to find the thing that works for you. So for me, it was like, okay, if I can share what I'm doing and if it unlocks one thing for you, Josh, one thing for you, Tasha, that even if it's just that it makes your work that week more interesting because you try one new thing, then it's super worth it. And so- but, but on the selfish side, like earlier this year, I started this newsletter that was for me, it was like twofold. It was to take a look at my own process and start to deconstruct it and kind of blow it up and start over again and like teach myself new ways to look at this. Mm -hmm. One, because I, I hate to say that I was bored. That's not the right way to say it. But I felt like a little stuck and a little sterile in, in what I was doing. And so I wanted to, my thought process was if I dissect this for myself, for the purpose of sharing with other people, it'll lead me to new things uh, for for my own work, and and that's one hundred percent what happened throughout mm -hmm. the course of the year. Wow. So I, I I can't I, I would love to say it's one hundred percent altruistic, uh, but it's like fifty oh, fifty, yeah. But it's a little bit selfish yeah. too because in sharing what I'm doing, it reminds me of the fundamentals and keeps me looking for new stuff. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I do too, and it's really interesting because we've talked about this before in terms of like. If you hear an idea, no one's going to have the same um, execution of an idea. And I'm a big proponent of putting ideas out there and talking about it and, and getting things going. And 
So that's why I really like hearing that you're putting like pitches out. And it's like, some people are afraid to do that. They're like, I don't want to share my process. I don't want to share my secret sauce or anything. Yeah, look, I understand that too. I, I totally get it. And there are people, I mean, I, I think it would take a, a, a level of, I mean, I would say like, I've been mischaracterized, but you know, for me, it would take a belief of like, this is so special yeah. that, that if, if somebody heard it, they would be so desperate to steal it. And they would execute it at such a level that they would find success with it. You know, like yeah. I think that I just don't, I, my, my brain doesn't go there, but I totally mm -hmm. understand people who are like, don't share your stuff. Don't share yeah. your um, things for me. It's like those, especially like those specific pitches. I think they were also, you know, going back to your, your first point, Josh, it was something I kind of felt was like, I was just a different writer and already moved on from them too. like, I wouldn't want to go pitch that show again right now. Yeah. So somebody wants to steal it and they go make a million dollars from it. Great. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel the same way. <laughs> also, another thing in there that you said that really hits home for me is the idea that we are always growing and learning. I feel like certainly when I was coming up there, I, I looked out and I, I seemed to see people who just got it. They just knew and they had the thing. And why don't I have the thing? But the thing, and I think what, you, what your story illustrates so well, is the thing is something you teach yourself that you grind forward constantly. And you are always very aware that I can be not better necessarily, but just different. I can grow. And I think that's something we always teach on the podcast or just talk about. You know, we don't know the answers, even though we've gotten to a certain place in our career. We're constantly learning new things about writing. And that's why I love this job, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, can I ask you guys, like with when, you know, in starting the podcast, what was your impetus for that? And then have you learned things or changed things by these conversations that you've had along the way? Absolutely. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's exactly what you're describing. We set about to demystify all the stuff that was completely shrouded for us when we were coming up. And we also didn't have anyone to turn to with any questions. And that's how ACT2 started. We were a support group for working screenwriters because I found whenever I was going out to drinks or coffee with other writers, they were scared to ask questions about very basic things like, struggles they're having with their producer and how to be honest with them. And I'm like, let's get a brain trust together to talk about how to do this with you. And then it just blew into this bigger thing. Um, and yes, like every time we do a new new episode, I feel like, oh, we learned something new. Like yeah, last, last time we, you know, we, we talked to a producer recently who um, was explaining her experiences with young writers and the difficulty she's having with them as they consistently try to please her. And that's not what she wants. She wants your voice. You, you want you to come at the point of view. And that was really interesting to me because I still do that sometimes when I sort of feel lost in something I'm writing. I just sort of lean on the producer instead of remember my lane, you know. And um, so, yeah, we're always learning. And that's I'm not going to speak for Josh. Sorry, Josh. But yeah, I learned some things. No, <laughs> I, 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 I I'm always learning as well. Exactly what Tasha was saying. It's like we'll bring things up. And it's also good to hear other people are going through similar issues. And even like what you're talking about, it just because a lot of times you get stuck in your own head and you're like, I'm, I'm worthless. I suck. I'm like the only person who can't get through this writer's block. And then you talk to someone else who's like, Hey, you know, I feel like I'm worthless and I, I, I have writer's block. And you're like, Oh, okay. It's not just me. Like yeah. we're yeah. all in this together. So, uh, yeah, but I'm always learning something new when you least expect it. I feel like that was like the, uh, the unexpected benefit of being in a writer's room for the first time for me too, is, having those conversations and, and exactly these kind of conversations and realizing like, Oh, I'm not crazy. Like everybody, yeah. <laughs> like everybody does. It's like I, everybody had imposter syndrome in there. Uh, we would even, there were certain, I remember having a conversation about 
the sort of imaginary conversations that you would have in your head, the argument that you would have for three yep. days with a person where you're constantly refining it to, and, and perfecting your dialogue. Like, oh, if I'd only said this, right? And going, and this is like a basic human thing. But in my head, I was like, man, there's something wrong with it. Is it because I'm a writer? Because I'm always, uh, and then in talking to these other uh, writers who did the same thing and, and we were, one, it was sort of heartening to know everybody else going through that. And then we started asking the question, like, are we writers because we had that right. inherently anyway? Or did being a writer cause that? <laughs> like, and, and I, I always love those kind of conversations. That's you funny. can only have in a room with other writers. Yeah, exactly. Um, kind of speaking to your first writer's, writer's room experience, you obviously became a pretty prominent creator very early in your career. It's your first thing. Can you kind of talk about what that was like? Kind of what was the biggest learning curve for you once you got into that room and your co-show running, which speaking to that um, relationship would be really interesting too, I think, because um, a lot of up and coming writers may or may not realize that um, if you do create a show and you know, you're greenlit to go, um, they're going to pair you with someone if you don't have yet a track record. So sorry, that's a long winded question, but um, what was your kind of most difficult learning curve? And then how was that experience with the co-show runner? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the the learning curve was definitely, it was just thrown into the deep end, for sure, because it was my first job in television. But it, but because of that, that was my mindset about it, was I'm here to learn as much as I can possibly learn throughout this process. I don't know how to make a television show. And so for me to pretend like I do... <laughs> it's be... not like everyone thought you had. Like, they knew. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, but I knew two things. One, I just intuitively knew that working with the showrunner that for the show to be a success for it to have a chance that the showrunner had to be invested as invested in it as I was and to have that investment they had to have some ownership of it uh, and had to have their ideas involved and so I came into it wanting to be just very collaborative and trying to make his job as easy as possible uh, in some ways and to just be the voice of like hey here's where this came from here's and to synthesize things as they would come up does that feel like the show i dreamed up sure does it not is it better worse or just different and so i feel like that was one of the first really big muscles to develop was that exactly that because you're in a room with eight people and or you're talking to like designers and the team and everybody the directors coming in and to really start to develop the muscle of is this better worse or just not how i would do it mm -hmm. if it's just not how i would do it then it's probably something i can give on and gives that person some ownership of the show and gives them um, and puts their ideas and their, their soul into it, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, it, and on a practical level, like I'd never written outlines really before, like my own scripts were just mostly bullet points and, and I would know a beginning, middle and end. And I would have sort of bullet points of scenes and sketches, but I'd never written like a real, you know, 15, 20 page outline of the story in prose form. So learning that was like, it was pretty fast. And then just being in a writer's room, those first few weeks of being in there talking all day long with eight other people was mentally exhausting. I'm still mentally exhausted. Mm -hmm. I still want to come home from a day in a writer's room. I'm, I don't want to speak to anyone until the following morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was all interesting to learn. Um, yeah. But I love it. And I, it, but it, I do feel like I love it, but I also need the other time too, which is just me, myself, and I with a pen and a piece of paper or my laptop and just generating things on my own too. I, I really find that I need both of those in order to like feel balanced. How in the world do you find time to do that while you're creating and show running a show? 
Listen, I'm coming from a place of privilege with that. I do not have kids. I have a dog. Right? So like uh, people who have children, people who have uh, those kind of expectations on them, those kind of responsibilities have much different situation. But for me, it was mostly like, okay, I, I, I've spent the whole week making the show and I want to hang out with my friends and family. I want to hang out with my girlfriend. I want to do fun stuff over the weekend. But I need to have like a little bit of quiet time in the morning. And then at some point I need to carve out two hours for myself to just sit down and tune out everything else and just connect with the, you know, like one new thing, one idea that is to do the thing that I find the most joy, which is like connecting ideas and, and putting stuff together. And so mm-hmm. uh, it takes some discipline and I'm not always perfect at it. I'm not one of those, like you have to write every day kind of people. I just don't think that's, I don't think that's healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're one of those people, great, but it's not, you're not less of a writer if you don't do that. Um, and so there are, there are plenty of times where I'm like, I really should write today, but you know what? I'm going to walk my dog and I'm going to go play pinball and uh, I'm going to give it up for the day. <laughs> like, I'll wait pinball. until tomorrow. Are you going um, to 82 to play pinball, right, Mickey? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hell yeah. yeah. That's our spot, man. <laughs> yeah, we always go to 82. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we've crossed paths there before. We wish would not have known it. I'm happy you didn't see That's me at great. 82. I'd be like, hey. <laughs> you know what's really funny and slash depressing about what you just said? is during that you were like, I'm fortunate I don't have kids, this and that. My little girl ran outside here and I like I was like shooing her away while you were saying that exact <laughs> thing. And I was like, just, get, get. didn't know what was going on. So, uh, Well, by the way, I want to just clarify. I didn't say I'm fortunate that I don't have kids. I was, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that wasn't I, the word he used. Child, right? <laughs> I, no, no. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I am not saying one thing uh, or another no I'm no and by the way i'm going back to 82 for a second that's where we held the uh rap party for reverie because we yes. were kind of like we were really sort of like barreling to the end and we hadn't planned on like a, an actual rap party and sarah shah he was like i really want to do something with the crew and so we just threw this impromptu uh rap party at bar 82 i called them they said sure bring everybody down and so for like three or four hours we were all just hanging out Playing, uh, playing games and drinking and having fun. So yeah, I, you're, I love you're it. You're our people. You're our people. We go every time one of us makes a sale or anything. That's the bar we go to to celebrate. So Fantastic. we'll see there next time. <laughs> well, I don't know if you guys ever make it over to Hanks. That's another one of my favorite. Or Hanks. That's the fictional version of my brain. Uh, Waltz in uh, Eagle Rock is another great pinball oh, bar. I don't even know. Oh, yeah. And Barcade in Highland Park is great too. Awesome. Yeah, yeah we'll have to hit all of those. No, I always yeah. do 82. All right. I am, I just want to highlight one thing that you said, because I do think it's very important and it's not a question. It's just a lantern. You said that when you first started as a creator, that um, you weren't afraid to ask a lot of questions. And I think that's a big barrier for a lot of people is they get so scared. Um, I, I still do all the time of like feeling like you have to know everything because you have to create this front for producers in order for them to have confidence in you. And I think there's some degree of truth to that. They have to have confidence in the fact that you can do your job and you can kind of manage people and you can have a vision for the show. But I have found as I'm a first time showrunner right now that I was terrified to ask questions at first, but you just kind of have to because you don't know how to do a thing. <laughs> and so you, you ask and you actually get a really honest answer and people are super understanding and it's now made me very unafraid to ask questions. And I think that's something I would love for other people, like for younger Tasha to have been able to let that go a lot sooner, <laughs> you know? Um, so just want to hang a lantern on that. Cause that's really interesting that um, that's the thing you pointed out. Yeah. I mean, if I could jump in with really two quick points there, I think I definitely had to learn that in terms of 
when people would ask questions about the series or about a certain episode, and I would feel this internal pressure to solve the problem on the spot. And so sometimes that's successful and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you start riffing and you start digging a bigger hole and then you see the confusion <laughs> on their faces. And you're like, but that's not what? And then, and then you go, oh man, I totally screwed up. I just trying to like, you know, riff an answer to this instead of saying, hey, that's a great question. I don't have the answer to that right now, but let me think about that. Let me talk to the showrunner. Let's work it on the writer's room. Or if it's in a pitch situation, I've been in the pitch situation where they'll ask a question at the end of the pitch and I'll go, that's an aspect of it I hadn't thought about yet. That's a really great question. But, um, you know, given a little time, some really smart people, I will come up with a great answer for that. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's great. I think, um, and then part two of that is on the set of the pilot uh, shoot of Reverie, I was going through it by myself. I had sold it with Amblin uh, without a showrunner. We attached a showrunner later once we got ordered to series. Um, but during that part of the process, we were going through looking at all of the, um, it was like a makeup and hair presentation, which is not my strong suit. And so, uh, and, and like there are certain, I think they had a detailed um, presentation of makeup, hair and wardrobe. And I was kind of just at a loss, right? And so I uh, pulled one of the Amblin guys aside and I was like, look, I, he, he, had, he had stepped up and had said, look, let's do this, this and this. And afterwards, like, how did you know how to do that? I, I like, that's a part I feel so bad because I just didn't have any, he's like, nobody expects you to be great at all of it mm -hmm. right now. Just focus on the things that you do really well. Focus on the script, focus on working with the actors, talking to Jama, the director. Um, that's what we're here for, to help, you know, fill out those things. And so, um, but in listening to him, and, and, and then picking his brain about it afterwards. Why did you ask for this? Why did you do this? Mm. I learned, and now I have that going into the next thing. So, um, so yeah, and, and you, you don't get that if you put up a facade of like, I have all the answers, I alone can fix it. Like we've heard that that's not a recipe for success. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, can I qu ask you a quick question? We won't, we won't go too much longer, so we'll, we'll rapid fire. This is kind of a heavy question though. So I don't, yeah. Yeah. um, what is your, uh, pitching process? Like, or like, how do you get prepared for pitching? Like, do you have a, do you have a general process that you get into when you're, when you're getting ready for a new idea? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, it's so much about just continually asking questions and refining the process. Like who is this character? Who, who, who is it about? what's interesting about the world is there a clear communicable engine to the show that's going to drive it for a 30 40 100 episodes maybe and is there a place for this show right now do i know that it can fit somewhere is there a role that i think an actor would love to play at the heart of it and if not how can i make that more interesting and, and more appealing and so it's a constant question of refinement and then what i tend to do is think about external goals you know, what does this character want? What are they trying to achieve? What's the, that engine, that plot engine of the show? And then what's the internal obstacle to that? What's the emotional story that they're going to go mm -hmm. through? Until I have those two big questions answered, I don't really sit down to write the pitch. And then once I do, and coming up with like the the the, the breakdown of the pilot and, and what the series is, when I start working on the pitch, it's it's always follows the same kind of roadmap, which is where did this come from? Like, what's my personal way in? talking a lot about the themes. Why is this important to me now? Why do I think this is going to resonate with the wider uh, audience and the, the world at large? A lot about the character. And the longer I do it, the more I rely on character, the longer that goes. And then jumping into the pilot and then the series. And I, and, and also like, as I get, as I go further along, like my pilot section of the pitch gets shorter. And I, I think early on, before I really learned how to do this from the excellent showrunner, uh, from Greg Walker, I would focus heavily on plot 
and less on character. And so my one of my big huge lessons was like, oh, you got to pitch from an emotional point of view place. Mm. It's so much about character. It's about their emotional story. It's about the other characters and their dynamics, their relationships, how those things grow and change over the course of the series. And so I, I tend to spend most of the real estate of that talking about those kind of things. Mm -hmm. now. Um, and then here are some cool twists and turns. Here are the cool tentpole moments and, and a couple of brief sentences about how, where this is going from here, how, setting up further seasons. And then once I have that, I, I'm one of those people, I like to rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it like a monologue because I, I started as an actor. And so mm -hmm. it's very natural to me to just like, it's a little bit like a one man show. And so again, there's no one way to do it. There are other people. I have friends who've gone in and just literally read from a page and sold their show. <laughs> and I've had people who've gone in with a whole visual song and dance and have sold their show. And then all the above who've not. Right. Mm -hmm. um, for me, what tends to work best is I know it backwards and forwards. I've rehearsed it 20 times. And so in the moment, I can be sort of nimble if questions come up. I can bounce from section to section. I can field questions as they come and always get myself back on track without yeah. generally having to look at uh, uh, much. Um, so that's 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 really kind of it for me. And I yeah. I think that's worked so far. And um, yeah, it, it, it's and also having those constraints gives me a way to um, fit all that in in that little mm -hmm. period of time. Do you bring an iPad with you? Do you bring printed pages? What do you do when you go to pitch? I truly bring printed pages and I'll just, I'll, I'll hopefully not have to look at them too much. I'll, you know, if I do, I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack. But my, my goal really is to, one of the things I love about it, it's like, this was a thing from, uh, I've heard from, you know, my acting days, which is that when you go in for an audition, that's your chance to play the role. It may be your only chance to play the role. So when you go into pitch, this may be your only chance to tell this story. Yeah. It, may, it may never be heard outside the, conf the confines of this room. And so I really try to embrace that as oh, this wow. is an opportunity to tell this. Never story. heard it put that way. Yes. There's something so tragic, but also so thrilling about that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to Sorkin, uh, he, I heard this interview with him the other day where he was, or is this quote from him that like he writes his characters as if they were like pleading their case to God mm -hmm. on why they should be let into the pearly gates. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a little, there's a little bit of like the pitch process of that. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. Um, this hasn't been very rapid fire just because I've been so engaged in your big stories and Me I too. love them. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm also very like Low fire. Really verbose. So my, no, my apologies for that too. No, not at all. I love the stories so much. Um, yes. All right, let's see. Maybe an, an easier one. What has been the hardest part about having a screenwriting career? I don't know if that's an easy question. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I take it back. No. It's not easy. <laughs> I could totally answer it in one word, which is a rejection. Yeah. Like that's uh, sort of right. part of it, right? So like you're, and then to just expound it for a, a another 280 characters is the fact <laughs> that like you put your heart and soul into these things, you're creating them, you spend months on them, and then you take them out to market and sometimes they just don't go and that's discouraging and then yet you still have to like go back and sit down and try again mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of like internal um you know internal strength to do that so yeah the rejection part of it is is 100 the hardest part yeah for me um speaking to that then in rejection that we all experience what was the longest period you have had between paid screenwriting jobs since I broke in, it's it's not been super long. I, I, I've been, again, very fortunate in that I was, uh, I think the longest I was out of, of work between jobs was maybe like three or four months. 
But when you're developing for a streamer, and Tasha, you may be going through this right now yourself, and uh, Josh maybe too, it's like those things can take like a year to a year and a half of your life. And so it can feel like you're out of work yeah. for a very long period of time, right? It's also like such of- a weird pay structure too. It's like yeah. we're in the process of, you know, buying a house or thinking of buying a house and getting into the process like okay well all right i have a job for next year but like i'm not really getting paid i'm not getting paid like every few months for that job it's very weird <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and and a lot of the people on the other side of that conversation because we did the same thing we've refinanced uh trying to explain to them like well no what happens is like i have my loan out and then every you know six months or so when it does come in it's like yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not ordinary for them um, all right. Favorite job you've ever had? Uh, writing or non-writing? Hey, Ooh. non-writing too. Both. Yeah, that's an option. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite non-writing job I ever had was right before I broke in to uh, the business, which was I was working for a company called uh, BRP. They made this product, the Can-Am Spider, which is the three-wheeled motorcycle. And I was one of their ambassadors for a year and a half, uh, riding this motorcycle cross country back and forth and shooting videos, taking pictures, writing articles for them. Um, and that was the best job I ever had before I broke into wow. television. That yeah. sounds amazing. And also a journey that Josh has been on, on a scooter though, but he did the same yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, that is correct. Cross country you, on a scooter? Yes. You've been saying a lot of things where I'm like, am I talking to myself right now? <laughs> <laughs> doppelganger i yeah it's it yeah yeah and he shot video and you know went on youtube and yeah you know what would be hilarious what years did you guys do this because <laughs> right exactly we crossed paths on oh, 40 were you, were you 2009 2008 2010 and 11 all right all right yeah. just barely Wait, damn it 2011 12 so i would have been a little later than you yeah okay I got those roads ready for you. What kind of scooter were you? They were, um, we bought these scooters from Pep Boys. They maxed out at um, uh, like 28 miles per hour, something like that. And the whole idea was we were just going to see the world at a snail's pace. And um, <laughs> we did. It took took us, we were on the road for a couple months. I can't, I was changed <laughs> after that that journey. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, like I was um, very, my first time riding it. I picked it up here in L.A., I was going to ride it back to Ohio and um, they had this whole event for us here in LA where we, uh, the ambassadors, we were all given our, our spiders. And I was like, well, I want to ride mine back to Ohio. And I thought I would do it in like three and a half days. It took me 10 because yeah. that first day I, I only did like three, I rode from here to Vegas and I was so sore. It was so punishing. I actually know what a spider is too. That's when you said that I was like, oh, I have a visual of this. I know exactly what you're talking about. They're so fun. I really love them, but I kind of, I had to give it up because I just wasn't riding it as much, and I, yeah. I got a little burned out. I think from riding so much those two yeah. couple of years. They're dangerous too. Every once in a while, you can get into a pretty close call, and you're like, "What am I doing here?" Uh, I do have one more very important question. Do you have a Steven Spielberg anecdote that that's like reinforces my love of Steven Spielberg? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it really is. He, 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 for me, lived up to everything I would hope that he was going to be. He just go. comes across as a guy who still loves cool ideas and who still gets really excited about things and has a passion for it. That was incredibly heartening to know that he's been in it that long and it still happens. Yeah. I have two stories that I think, I mean, the work of it was the work of it. And like hearing him weigh in on the the notes and the um, 
watching him in the edit room work a cut and stuff like that was so interesting. Wow, um, yeah. But the first day he came to set, we were at Culver Studios and he visited set while we were shooting the pilot. And we were all standing around talking to him kind of in a circle. And he was like looking up in the grid. And he was like, oh, yeah, this we shot E.T. on this stage. Whoa, was, oh my gosh. Yeah, the spaceship was right over here. And yeah, and so we were, that was super awesome. And then he came back. I think we were shooting episode three, maybe, and he came back for a day. And I had written that episode again. So I was sitting next to him in the director's chairs. And I think it was right around the time of the 30th anniversary of Goonies. And so there were all these stories about uh, Richard Donner and the kids and stuff that were coming out. And one of the stories was about how Steven Spielberg, as a prank, like at the end of shooting Goonies, Richard Donner, all he wanted to do was get away from these kids and go to Hawaii for some peace and quiet. And then Steven Spielberg flew the whole cast of Goonies. <laughs> surprised Richard Donner is a prank. So I think Richard Donner, the story is like, he's like in his backyard and he hears this screaming and all of a sudden all the kids from Goonies that he's trying, desperately trying to like get some R&R from come running across the yard. And so I, I, I remember asking about that. I was like, I just read the story and he just started laughing. He was like, oh yeah. And he was like, Dick loved those kids. He really, he really did love it. So that, that by the way, sounds like a sequel to the Goonies, like them in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Hilarious. I mean, Mickey, we've kept you here for an hour. Yeah, I'm good, Tasha. What so do you think? We're, I mean, I have a million more questions, but let's wrap <laughs> it up. Um, yeah. This was fantastic. Definitely follow Mickey. Mickey, are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on, um, mostly on Twitter, uh, MickeyFisher73. And there is a link to the newsletter from there if you want to subscribe to it. It's yeah. totally free. It's, it's mostly weekly, and it's, again, just like process. It's really a process journal and things I'm working on that week, kind of like you're talking about the writer, the writing thing of the week. Mm -hmm. um, it's stuff I discovered, stuff I'm trying. And so if you're interested in that, come check it out. And um, But other than that, just best luck to everybody and happy holidays. Thank you, Mickey. All right, the man, the myth, the legend, Mickey Fisher. Um, all right, I have two quotes of the day today because wow. they showed up on my feed and back to back and I find this hilarious. All right, write about what you know. Being honest is what counts, trying to make the ordinary extraordinary. As your creator and a director, it's your job to make an audience as excited and fascinated about a subject as you are. And real life does that. Ricky Gervais. Second quote. Write what you know is the least useful maxim for writers. It is nonsense. You should write whatever you want. Christopher Nolan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. So please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm on Instagram as Josh Hallman and Twitter at Joshua Hallman. And as always, the Act Two podcast is a production of Act Two, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Bag, which you can find on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs>